Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's Panel Beater here. I'm joining you for the third last Radiotherapy of 2020. Um, still two more to go with Dr. Nick and then finishing the year with uh, Doolittle. But it's myself and Panel Beater, uh, myself, Panel Beater, and Dr. Neo, newly named Dr. Neo, first full show as Dr. Neo, and Dr. Sharma. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning to you. Hearing me loud and clear over the uh, the Skype waves? Yes. <laughs> it's never been better. <laughs> Last show still keeps me awake at night. Oh, that that's live radio for you. <laughs> you know what? The first thing I did was check that button when I came in this morning. Check that button. <laughs> hey, um, but good to see you. I can see you. Nobody else can, but it's good to see you on Skype. Um, hey, we've come to the end of 2020 for us, the three of us anyway. Uh, what a year it's been, hey? And, uh, you know, even up until... Oh, a month ago. Who knew how this uh, this this particular period was going to shape up? But yeah, we have to admit it's probably never looked more hopeful in Melbourne for quite some time. Uh, the streak of donuts continues. There's talk of vaccines, and uh, people yeah. are smiling and you know, and Masks. unmasked and, and legally so. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, good. Everyone's under QR codes with their visits right. to cafes and restaurants. You know, everyone's QR savvy. We've really adjusted to this uh, new way of life, and I'm I'm really quite amazed, and actually quite proud of how kind of fusslessly uh, we've we've managed to to do it in Melbourne. So you yeah, know, really. it's uh, just just goes to show you know you, you kind of think together, you act together, and yep. uh, and you know and things have changed for the better. And we've really adapted quite well, I'd say. When I uh, was you know turning my mind to today's show, I was thinking, wow, the the sorts of thoughts we were having about preparation for the program for the year remember the three of us met up late january we were not at all planning on this sort of year was it yeah we oh. uh, we listed a uh i think it must have been 20 guests that we would have liked to, liked to <laughs> yeah. um, i don't think we've had a single one of that one from that list because i think the um the realms of experts from this year have just yeah radically changed into yeah, public right. health uh, the public health world. Yeah, yeah, and it made sense to do that pivot. I know we often, you know, I've heard people say, "Look, I'm over COVID." You know, um, you know, and President Trump, as he put it, you know, COVID, COVID, COVID. That's all you hear. <laughs> um, but um, it 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 made sense to uh, pivot and orientate ourselves. But we're going to finish off uh, our show this uh, week, um, turning our mind to the COVID nineteen twenty twenty radiotherapy awards. I'm looking forward to that. A bit of fun and frivolity to uh, end the year. Um, but we also have a guest, and um, Neo, Dr. Neo, do you want to tell us a little bit what, what we're looking forward to there? Yeah, someone who's very not, very much not COVID. Um, we are going to have an associate genetic counsellor, recently graduated genetic counsellor, um, on our show to discuss one of her recent papers. Um and I think I, I can't certainly remember a time that we've had a genetic counsellor on the show. So I think it'd be a good insight into exactly what genetic counsellors are, what they do and the services that they um, are now rapidly providing to the, the public with um, the field of genetics getting just so much uh, bigger and more accessible. 
Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking for that. I think you're right. I don't recall in, well, certainly in the 11 years that I've been paying closest attention, the reproductive genetic um, counsellors on at all. So awesome, awesome. Um, and Avyom, you're going to talk to us briefly about something that's uh, been dare I say, triggering you a little bit this week, this past week, maybe longer, but I've noticed over the last week that there's an important difference between talking about aerosol and airborne, isn't there? Uh, yes. Well, on one hand, we've got aerosol and airborne, and they're, I guess, kind of part and parcel of how uh, a lot of us believe that COVID-19 may well be transmitted, right. um, as opposed to what, what's uh, kind of properly referred to in a lot of government guidelines, which is that COVID spreads by droplets. And this is a debate, which, look, it's been going on for quite some time. Um, and uh, But, you know, it's really kind of coming to a coming to a head now as we finally see parts of the government kind of change their tune a little bit. So we'll have a bit of a chat about that too later. Brilliant, brilliant. Look, we've got, uh, we're going to be uh, really packed to the rims with the show today. So we'll just go to a couple of sponsor announcements and we'll tee up our first guest. You're on Radiotherapy, last show of panel, Team Panel Beta for 2020. Uh, two more radiothons, uh, three radiotherapies to go. We'll be back very shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Welcome back, Radiotherapy. Um, it's myself, Panel Beta, with Neo, Dr. Neo and Dr. Sharma via Skype. And Dr. Neo has our guest, Dr. Neo. So we've got uh, Lauren Thomas, who is a recently graduated associate genetic counsellor working in reproductive genetics at the Victorian Clinical Genetics Service. She recently published a paper examining which types of conditions should be included in reproductive genetic carrier screening. Lauren, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Um, So welcome to the show, Lauren. Um, Now, can you describe... Um, exactly what a genetic counsellor is for our audience. Sure. So um, genetic counsellors are health professionals that are trained in both genetics and in counselling, as you might expect from the name. Um, We typically work in clinical genetic services, but work in lots of different areas as well, including research. Um, I guess the role of a genetic counsellor has a lot to do with facilitating genetic testing for individuals and families, um, and also a lot of our role is about supporting individuals and families through the process of genetic testing. Yeah, lovely. So what are some of the typical situations our listeners might be in that they would come into contact with a genetic counsellor? Yeah, so there's lots of um, different times that people may see a genetic counsellor, certain certain areas, so sometimes if there might be a family history of a particular genetic condition, um, you might see a genetic counsellor to get a little bit more information about that um, to have testing for yourself. Uh, Sometimes you might see a genetic counsellor in the prenatal context, so thinking about starting a family and what screening options might be available. So really anywhere that genetic testing is available um, is where you might find yourself seeing a genetic counsellor. Excellent. So um, some of the examples that come to my mind are things like the BRCA gene, which has been quite um, popular in the media um, for breast cancer. Um, Is that something that genetic counsellors handle? 
certainly, yeah. A lot of people um, would see a genetic counsellor if they were interested in talking more about um, genetic counselling for breast cancer risk, maybe if there's a family history or if they've had the breast cancers themselves, yeah. Um, so with the ma massive advances in the field of genetics over the past 10 to 20 years, um, now at the point where companies like 23andMe will literally mail you out an at-home genetic test. It seems like we need genetic counsellors now more than ever. Uh, where do you see the profession evolving to? Like, for example, will there be a day where literally everyone will be seeing a genetic counsellor? Um, I think it really comes down to what sort of information people want um, and if someone is seeking genetic information about themselves then um, yeah we hope that genetic counsellors are accessible to everyone um, should they like to see one but yeah you're right there's been uh, so many advancements in genetic technology and it's a, a field that's rapidly growing and changing so there's definitely more situations in which someone one might see a genetic counsellor and I'm sure um, that will evolve over the next um, few years as well. Uh, Lauren Tsviom here. Uh, question for you regarding uh, mm. uh, 23andMe and those kind of home mm. genetic uh, test analyses that people can order. Obviously, you, you're kind of clearly an expert in the field. What do you <laughs> perceive as some of the, I guess, the, the issues and perhaps you know, limitations and unintended consequences that perhaps you know, people like us in the community don't realise and you kind of look, step back and look at the problem and go, hmm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if people are you know, missing this part of the picture. What are your thoughts on, on these, these kind of home-based commercial genetic tests? Yeah, look, I think um, within Australia, I'm not too sure how available. I think within Australia, the current um, rules and guidelines for genetic testing is that it has to be ordered through a health professional. Um, I don't know, in other countries, like you mentioned, 23andMe, you can get those sort of direct-to-consumer tests. Um, for us, I guess the, something that we think about a lot in genetic counselling is about informed consent um, and making sure that people really have all the information about the tests that they're doing and they are aware of what it might find. And I guess that's something that can be a little bit concerning with um, direct-to-consumer testing is that uh, availability of knowledge and, you know, are, um, are people really able to provide informed consent and have they been given enough information about the test that they're having and have they been offered support um, and, yeah, to speak to someone if they've got questions. So, yeah, those are the things that we would think about with direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Lauren, um, I'm really keen to know a little bit about the ethical considerations, um, ethical considerations for the counsellors, for the research that sits behind all of this. Um, can you bring us up to speed on wh wh where the conversation's at about that aspect of this, um, this work? Uh, in terms of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, do you mean? Well, I guess there's ethics involved in the research on genetic testing and then there's ethics involved on responding to, you know, um, client-patient uh, inquiries to get tested, right? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm certainly no ethicist, so definitely not an expert in the field, but I guess um, with respect to ethics in genetic counselling, we really follow those sort of 
health professional model and code of ethics in terms of the way that we respond to clients, um, the way that we answer questions and, yeah, the, I think the real sort of ethical um, ethical concerns can be there for people. It depends on the sort of testing that, that you're having done and what those ethical concerns might be. But it's certainly something that we're conscious of and, and aware of being health professionals. Perhaps part of what I'm getting at is um, you mentioned uh, in response to Dr Neo about what was available and and there's a sense that uh, it depends what the, the client wants, what they might want to be tested with. They might present with some concern about medical history in the family and so on and that makes sense that they would inquire about that. But I wonder if there's any uh, sense in the current climate environment, scientific environment, that this um, want to be tested might turn into a have to be tested. You know, maybe insurance companies are going to take a look at this and they're going to say, well, before you take out insurance policy, we, we want you to be tested. Oh, that would be very interesting. Um, I guess uh, with regard to insurance uh, at the moment, so um, there's currently a moratorium which says that um, for certain types of insurance, um, genetic insurance companies um, can't ask about genetic testing. We're not sure what, what that will look like in the future and, and how that will change. But, yeah, insurance certainly can be um, a concern for people, yeah. So, Lauren, you recently published a paper on the views parents um, with children who have a genetic condition have on reproductive genetic carrier screening. Uh, Could you give us a bit of an overview of um, what the paper was about and what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, So this was a study that I did as a part of my um, Master of Genetic Counselling research. Um, It was a survey of parents of children with genetic conditions. So we reached 150 parents um, and they did an online questionnaire and we asked them about several different types of conditions and we gave sort of general descriptions um, and asked people a couple of questions about each type of condition. So to give you an idea of what we were asking about, um, for example, one of the conditions was a neuromuscular condition. Um, another condition was um, hearing loss and another condition was um, a form of inherited intellectual disability. So we asked people about a range of different conditions and um, we asked them whether they think that that type of condition should be offered in reproductive carrier screening, so should it be included in a panel. Um, The second part that we asked about was would you choose to have screening for this type of condition? And the third part was whether you would use reproductive options to avoid having a child with this type of condition. So what we were really trying to do was work out, you know, for this group of people, where where do you sort of draw the line? You know, what do you think should be included and and what would you do with that information if you had it? Um, what we found... Oh, yeah, go ahead. So just taking a step back, mm. the actual practicalities. Um, yeah. It's mum and dad get a, a blood test and they get a genetic screen and then yeah. um, there's a a series of different conditions which you could be a carrier for, so you don't necessarily have the condition. Yeah, that's correct. So carriers for these conditions are typically healthy, so wouldn't have any signs or symptoms of the condition. And then if both mum and dad are a carrier, then they have a certain chance of the child having 
Yeah, that's correct. So there's um, there's conditions for which both mum and dad would need to be a carrier for there to be an increased chance of having a pregnancy affected by the condition. There's also some conditions that are what we call X-linked, um, meaning that they're typically um, passed on from the mother. Um, so there's different types of conditions that are involved, but yeah, some conditions in which both parents need to be carriers and then some conditions in which just the female being a carrier um, can confer an increased chance of a pregnancy affected by a particular genetic condition. And so this study was looking at the views parents have on this kind of screening after they've already had a, ch a child with a genetic condition. Yeah, that's correct. I guess the the reason that we um, wanted this particular group of people is because of their lived experience. So all these parents have a child diagnosed with a genetic condition. Um, there was a huge variety in the genetic conditions that, that parents had children with. But yeah, we really wanted to understand how does um, lived experience impact views towards reproductive carrier screening. And you found some pretty um, incredible results. So 90% supported screening for neuromuscular conditions, early fatal neurodegenerative conditions, chronic multi-system disorders and uh, conditions which cause intellectual disability, but only 556 would screen for preventable adult onset conditions such as hemochromatosis. Um, do you have yeah, any thoughts about why this is so starkly different? Yeah, I guess um, like the conditions that you mentioned earlier on, the ones that are typically considered to be clinically more severe, we saw a lot more support um, in people thinking that should be offered. But when you get to those conditions that are maybe more variable or have an adult onset, um, there were, the views were definitely a lot more mixed. So that's when we saw maybe 50 to 60% of people thinking it should be offered and 50 to 60% of people thinking it shouldn't be offered. Um, in terms of why that might be the case, I think uh, there's a sort of a general um, understanding of, you know, a lot of parents go into um, having genetic carrier screening because um, they want to have a healthy child. And I think um, those conditions where the symptoms are present younger or, or in childhood uh, are maybe easier to, to say, yep, yeah, I think this should be included, but those conditions where they're affecting adults or are much more variable are, are really challenging to make that decision on whether or not you want that sort of information about your um, future child. So I think it's just the challenging nature of making a decision on that information that, that is variable and quite far into the future. Uh, uh, Lauren, obviously, this is actually an incredibly important question that I guess your, your, mm. your, your study's asking, and you made that mention of that lived experience. Mm. Um, you know, is, is there potentially then, hence, something like a broader lesson we, you know, that all of us can take away, perhaps those of us who don't have children uh, with, with a kind of chromosomal um, uh, disease or abnormality that's kind of related do you think how do you think this would i, I suppose potentially influence the way you offer counseling uh to to people to, to parents who or expecting parents who do not have children um are there, are there perhaps points that you'd like to bring up to them or do the you know the intending parents often ask you what it must be like to have a child with which uh, which such uh, diseases what are your thoughts there how do you think this might influence your practice 
Yeah, I think um, in terms of the way that we offer genetic counselling and the way we present information, um, it wouldn't necessarily change any of the way that we um, counsel people around genetic conditions and the tests that we offer. I think what this research um, was really hoping to show is just the importance of having the opinions and the views of people who have this experience as part of the conversation about what types of conditions are included in carrier screening. So um, I would say it's more so about um, presenting the views of, of this particular group and um, how their experience has, has impacted their, their decisions, I guess. And, yeah, I think in terms of our counselling, um, it would be very similar in that we would counsel people um, in a very supportive and, and open way regardless of, of um, yeah, their experience. Lauren, that's uh, all we have time for today, but thank you so much for, um, I guess, opening um, the ears of our listeners to the amazing world of genetic counselling. I think uh, if any of them were to come into contact with a genetic counsellor in the future, I think they'd be uh, much more informed. Uh, that's good to hear. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome back to Radiotherapy, Team Panel Beater, myself, Panel Beater, Dr. Sharma, and Dr. Neo via Skype. Now, Dr. Sharma, um, like many listeners, I'm sure, I, I take a keen interest in your tweeting behaviour and activity. You've given me much delight and much education over the course of the year. But I couldn't help but notice um, you go, uh, you, you spent a bit of time this week dealing with aerosol and airborne. And I know many listeners will be like me going, okay, I think I get the idea what's the distinction and why it's relevant for us to know this when we're talking about responses to COVID, but clear it up for us. Yeah, in fact, look, I think it's probably worth framing in that way as to why this debate even kind of matters. And so just to clarify that there's this debate, a lot of disagreement, uh, essentially about how it is that this virus, COVID-19, the illness that's caused by the virus, actually spreads. So we are still actually debating it. Um, so if we kind of go back in time to, to March, um, we were told that uh, the way that this virus spreads is almost exclusively essentially through droplets. Like you, you speak or you cough and you get this bit of kind of fluid that comes out of your mouth invisibly that you either can or can't see. It depends how big on the, big this droplet is. And it's got a bit of the virus. Is that the polite way of saying whether it's snot or not? Snot or not. Yes, snot or not. That's right. That's the, uh, that's the debate. Um, and so the idea being that um, this kind of fluid-filled kind of like droplet uh, that has rather virus inside it lands somewhere, either goes directly into someone's mouth or into their eyes or onto a surface that someone touched and they didn't touch their face, and, hey, you, you get infected. Um, and that had pretty much been, I'd say, the dogma um, until several months into the pandemic where you had several people going, are we sure that's the only way it spreads? Um, is it true that it's droplets? These things that kind of come out of the mouth and then just kind of fall down to the ground, almost undergoing what we kind of call ballistic motion. Or is it possible that um, uh, particles and hence, uh, bits of the infective virus are actually hanging in the air? So that's what this debate is really about. Is there a meaningful amount of virus that will float in the air? 
and that people can inhale and then get infected? Or is it the case that the only way the virus comes out is in these droplets that you project out of your mouth or you speak or you cough or whatever and undergoes what we call this kind of ballistic motion. It kind of goes forward and just kind of falls down in a curve. Um, which one of the two is it? And it's got a lot of uh, implications in terms of what we can and can't do to, to stop the spread just, of, of this disease. Just before we come to those implications, can you um, give us some context around the, the nature of the debate at the moment? Who's in one camp? Who's in another? Are there only two camps? What's the nuance? Oh, boy. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's tricky. Uh, I think what we'll, we're finding is that most uh, government authorities, um, uh, be that in Australia or, say, the WHO or the CDC in America or European authorities, had traditionally pretty much just kind of favoured this droplet model and not really talking very much about uh, the words uh, aerosol, which is these kind of floating particles uh, that might have virus in them. Um, but so there was this kind of almost this kind of split. You had these like the these kind of chemical engineers and physicists saying, "Hey, I reckon this stuff, you know, probably matters." This aerosol stuff, and the and the all the authorities saying no. But over time, this is what makes the debate very confusing. Um, some of these authorities are starting to shift their their stance. They're saying aerosol may be a bigger factor than we previously thought. Uh, and that was you know, perhaps the most prominent person who said that was uh, was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, who's kind of spearheading the U.S. response. And he said that a couple of months ago. We've had uh, the, the USA change their definitions. Europe have softened their stance. Australia, not so much. We're still sticking to the, to the, to the, to the droplet um, uh, kind of a dogma there uh, a bit. So uh, in Australia, we're, we're seeing some very soft acknowledgement of, of aerosols, uh-huh. but really no one wants to say the dirty A word, uh-huh. aerosol or airborne. Um, so we, we, I, to give you an indication of where we are, uh, I would say Australia is roughly two months behind on Uh-oh. this debate as compared to, to the rest of the authorities. But yeah, they would argue with good reason. Two months behind. Are... Two months behind in a uh, pandemic and with, with this nature, with the nature of things, that's a long gap. That's a big gap. It, it is a big gap. And look, but I want to be kind of fair and charitable to the other side, I suppose. If you can <laughs> tell which side I'm on. Um, you know, guess what? Like we've we've got a bit more, I hate to say this, kind of time, I suppose, than some of these other nations. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I think we've suffered the repercussions of not coming to the table and agreeing to, to aerosol transmission. I think that's what led to so many healthcare workers getting infected. Um, but, you know, when there's more skin in the game, when you're when you're in the position of America, you know, you, you're going to want to uh, uh, align your views with reality ASAP. And so, hence, I think we're seeing people like the uh, Anthony Fauci and the CDC uh, trying to wake people up more to the realities of aerosol and airborne transmission. So, what's the what's the danger like in admitting that it's aerosol? Like, why why are we lagging behind on the fact that it is aerosol? Or if it is aerosol, why is the the Australian government not admitting to it? Great. So, this is a fantastic question, right? Um, why, you know, really, why would they not want to admit it? Well. There's a variety of options uh, that, that I kind of always go through every morning in my head trying to go, what are they thinking? Um, the, the, the first, probably the, the most easiest explanation would be they just don't think it's correct. And that would be a very simple one. They just think, no, we just don't agree with the science of it. Um, and I think there are certain national experts who literally do not agree with the science. Uh, but actually, I think there's much more to it than that. I think if our authorities had to agree that aerosol-based transmission is at the very least significant, if not the dominant mode by which this disease spreads, that would mean that a lot of our healthcare worker 
um, uh, kind of uh, personal protective equipment guidelines in terms of things like masks, etc., would be completely inadequate. So that would be one big repercussion, I would argue. The uh, other repercussion, if if you know they admitted that um, uh, that uh, aerosol transmission is significant, if not dominant, would, uh, it would instantly mean that our ventilation systems in uh, in hospitals are completely inadequate, and probably a lot of kind of office buildings too. Um, so I think that might be a little bit of the kind of bureaucratic and kind of political uh, motivation behind not publicly conceding it. And yet, if you actually kind of look at what the states are doing recently, especially say somewhere like Victoria, again, you know, more skin in the game, so more more reason to line out is the reality. They've been really pushing the idea of we need to ventilate places, and you need to keep your windows and doors open, and you need to favor kind of outdoor environments. But guess what? That really only tends to make sense that advice if you think that there is airborne or and aerosol-based transmission. It doesn't tend to make as much sense if you just believe in a pure kind of droplet model. So we are seeing the advice change, but they don't want to use the words uh, because I think they might be afraid of how that's going to be perceived by people um, in terms of uh, you know, perhaps the inadequacy of what we've had so far. The other thing is, I think, and I think this is something that's underpinned so much of Australia's communication woes about COVID-19 at a governmental level, is I think they are afraid of creating a panic. Right. I think they're. I think they're afraid that if they say that this stuff is in the air, it floats around, that they think people are going to to, to just freak out. It's going to be a complete frenzy. Um, so, and I'm being charitable here. I think this is what they think will happen. Uh, I think they're completely wrong, of course, on yeah. this. I don't think people are going to panic. Uh, I, I think we've seen surprisingly little panic uh, yeah. in the, uh, you know, heading into December uh, this year. So, yeah. you know, I, I think there's a lot of perception issues. How they are worried about how their response will be perceived. How they're worried about how people might freak out. And some people just disagree with the science. But I think the momentum is pretty clearly shifting in favour of um, more and more authorities realising that airborne and aerosol transmission is a reality of COVID-19. So um, bringing it to that question of ventilation and perhaps to listeners' lived experience, things like I, I, I was thinking about this when I was on the tram the other day and it was one of the hot days during the week and instead of the air conditioning being on, the windows were down. Is that... Is that an example of a decision that needs to be made with this in mind and perhaps air conditioning in, in offices and things like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the, the funny thing is when numbers are zero in a state and, and uh, yeah, and overall in Australia very low, it, any given intervention, whether you open the windows or not, in and of itself is not a, going to be a kind of make or break thing. Right. Um, because you know, the chance of any transitions happening is low. but. Over the course of months and months and months, yes, these are the kind of things we'd need to attend to. Uh, and it's not just as simple as going, uh, you know, like a, we need to open the windows. Um, there is a certain kind of pattern and direction of airflow that you'd want to ensure it's actually kind of happening. So this is what where ventilation studies come in. And they look at the direction in which the air is flowing, where it's most likely to be kind of recycled and or it's just going to be a lot of dirty air, so to speak. It's just going to be whacking people in the face. Um, so these are the kind of studies we would need. And these are, again, the kind of implications uh, that come from recognising that aerosol transmission could be a significant factor. Brilliant, brilliant, uh, Dr. Sharma. Uh, listeners, that's just a taste of the education you can get by following Dr. Vyom on Twitter. <laughs> you just need to overlook his taste in instant coffee and, uh, and then the legitimacy, the legitimacy for his medical advice, I'm sure, is very sound. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Gentlemen, to wrap things up for the year, we've got the COVID-19 awards. Let's get right into it. We've only got about 19 minutes. Before the magical people at Einstein and GoGo, who've got a very special show lined up, a whole hour dedicated to an interview with Tim Flannery, um, and that will be, of course, going live to air later on um, uh, on demand uh, and podcast, but it's also um, live streaming on Facebook, I believe. So, our first award, award COVID-19 award for the year is the We're All In This Together Award. Gentlemen, we've got a couple of nominations. You may have some additions to make since we last uh, spoke about this, but our two nominations are Beck Judd and Kim Kardashian. Now, I believe one of you has something very particular to say about the Kim Kardashian We're All In This Together scenario. Yes, uh, so this was... A completely you know, well-intended uh, tweet by Kim Kardashian about a couple of months ago, and yet completely misjudged the sentiment in. I don't want to say you know, the, she didn't say read the room. She, I think she failed to read. I don't know the, the world, the year. Um, she was making reference to the fact that, quite rightly, uh, you know, being having to be in lockdowns, etc., is incredibly onerous for people and uh, upset our sense of normality. So she said um, she wanted to create a, a sense of normality during COVID times. <laughs> How? By flying her closest circle of friends, which is about seventy people, to a private island um, for for a party and uh, share these glorious photos of the very quote unquote normal times that they were recreating and uh, this got the exactly the kind of response what you would expect from people in 2020 which is a big wtf yeah. uh it was a but yeah you know, it was one of those very stark highlights of uh just how very different people's pandemic experiences be not exactly sense of normality <laughs> mm. yeah that's what's normal for you Jeez, what's yeah. good? it's covid normal um yes and of course people will be very familiar with beck jug uh, Instagram account over COVID, um, going the going going at Dan for the lockdown. Um, meanwhile, um, enjoying what could hardly be described as a, a prison existence. <laughs> That's right. Wasn't it, wasn't it a quote to, to a hashtag Free Melbourne? Free Melbourne, million dollar Biden <laughs> yeah. mansion. Yes. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and some wag said, you know, um, the most disappointing thing about the five k radius uh, limits was that she couldn't get to the other side of the house. Yeah, <laughs> I found this one particularly bad because I'm I'm in a a share house with uh, three other people in uh, in Carlton, which is essentially a shoebox, and she's out in Brighton with a tennis court and a pool and uh, you know multi multi million dollar mansion. Um, <laughs> Oh, the share house sounds great. We could try it if she'd like. <laughs> yeah. Um, do we have a clear winner here? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm Who are you going to go with, Dr. Sharma? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say Kim Kardashian. She wins. Yeah, I'll go with oh. Kim. What about you, uh, Neo? I was going to go with Beck, just be, Beck Judd, just because of the, um, you know, little bit of the proximity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a tiebreaker. Oh, power leader. Who's going to pick? No, no, it's two. It's two one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, it's that's Kim. it. <laughs> Let's go to um, the uh, next award, which is the oft overlooked award. And our nominations are casual workers, cleaners, home carers, aged care workers, 
and Vietnam, Taiwan. Huh. I like this category. I think so. The, the, I think the idea is really that people or things or ideas that don't really get much of a mention, but uh, you know, without them, where would we be? Or the, the kind of the truth they kind of demonstrate. Yeah, to us. yeah. Um, I think the and, home you know, care. I know this, is, and, and you know, you know this from working in a, in a hospital. You know, we we uh, often, to, for example, you know, the cleaners are kind of working in the hospitals. Um, very easy to, to, to forget, um, for them to be invisible, and yet who's basically been doing all the decontamination of every single surface, keeping us safe, has been our incredible cleaning staff. Yeah. I I think that's really um, exemplified for me this year when I had, like, I used to get in the hospital anywhere between 6.30 and, you know, 8.30 in the morning, and there was always one cleaner, same person every single day, no matter what time I get there, she's always there before me, starting her job, like cleaning every surface you could possibly imagine um, and always with a smile on her face. And it was just like so humbling an experience because she like didn't have hear a word of complaint from her despite everything that she's doing and always being there earlier than me. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of always smiling, uh, aged care workers, yeah. and uh, my goodness, you know, it, it must be very difficult for, for them to smile this year, especially during Victoria's second wave. They're so clearly disproportionately affected and, and infected uh, by COVID. And, uh, you know, I think we've just learned the, that how important that, that work actually is. Yeah. If you've got a parent in an aged care uh, home, I mean, is it? could you think of a more important job? Probably not. So very unsung. It's hard for me to split the difference on this uh, category and these nominations. But if I do, I'm probably going to go with home carers. I reckon that would have been tough going lockdown. The idea of um, the, the, the effort in so-called normal times that home carers go to, but uh, the stress that is associated with uh, COVID times would have been um, really enormous, I imagine, but can't really differentiate. I do want to make a honourable mention to Vietnam and Taiwan. It gives you an indication of just how Eurocentric and North American-centric our media is. Um, Vietnam and Taiwan did an amazing job, effectively benchmark um, uh, lockdowns, quarantine, cleaning and public health um, address. And, and uh, we just don't hear that reported very much at all. I um, This is quite funny because I had this um, conversation with my partner literally yesterday about Vietnam, how they were doing things that uh, we were considering revolutionary at, uh, like, back in March, like quarantining uh, contacts and contacts. Yeah. That's right. And, yeah. and, and now that we've only started doing it in October, you know, surprise, surprise, we're having incredible results. Um, no, you're right. The, uh, they, Vietnam should be mentioned at the start of every news bulletin uh, this year. And you're right, incredibly, uh, this, this kind of incredible Anglophone bias that yeah. I think we have in our approach with COVID has, uh, has become apparent. But, you know, I think we're finally waking up to the successes of these SARS-ready uh, nations. You're going to go out on a limb, uh, Dr. Neo, who are you calling? Oh, it's, it has to be aged care workers. That's the job yeah. that um, I don't know how they possibly managed to do yep. in 2020 you know they, I, there were some notable slip-ups with the um the systematic approach to how we treated aged care workers you know um in, and insecure work in general but um i think aged care workers are um very much uh, the true uh, heroes of this i've got a and, sense and, and i completely concur okay so... there we go aged care workers well done aged care workers
Um, our next uh, award, COVID-19 2020 Radiotherapy Award, is for the not-so-invisible hand of the market. And this is an award for those who have benefited, uh, perhaps obscenely so, uh, from the lockdown. Our nominations are is the pharmaceutical company Gilead, who initially, after some interesting uh, and encouraging results on uh, Remdesivir, Desivir, um, came out, they initially indicated that they were going to charge $48,000 a dose. <laughs> Um, uh, eventually, I think the current going rate is around about $3,100 a dose. Good on them. Um, and, you, and, you know, the, the best part about that is, uh, so they finalised this pricing agreement with, uh, w- w- in Europe uh, just weeks before the biggest trial yeah. reporting on remdesivir's effectiveness <laughs> yeah. uh, was, um, was revealed. And so they agreed to the price in Europe, and they did. And just a week or two later, the biggest trial showed that remdesivir makes zero difference <laughs> to COVID-19. Yeah. Completely useless. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And good night. Uh, the mirth of the investors was well felt around the world. Um, and to, in, in general terms, all top 20 um, global innovative biopharma companies reported an increase in market cap for the year of, count this, uh, 20.2%. That's $2.8 trillion um, as a direct result of COVID. This is, not, um, on, uh, this is not inclusive of normal growth. Our third uh, a, um, uh, a nominee is a man busted for forty-five for a forty-five million dollar scheme to defraud New York City through phony PPE sales, <laughs> and finally, calling people going, hey, yeah. you, want a, you want an apron? That's right, and another arrested for hoarding. Count them: one hundred and ninety-two thousand N ninety-five respirator masks and five hundred ninety-eight thousand medical gloves. Champions of of humanity. God. I'm going to go. I, I think it's pretty hard to ignore um, the, uh, the the big farmer. I'm going with them. Yeah, uh, the top twenty. Yeah, let's let's hand it top to them. Top twenty. Okay, there are our winners. There, our um, next award, COVID nineteen twenty twenty radiotherapy award, is for tool of the year. This is a long list. We had to try and keep it uh, pretty <laughs> pretty pretty short. Um, we've gone with uh, Pete Evans, Sam Newman, Tim Smith, and Donald Trump. Um, I think, uh, Dr. Sharma, you should speak to Pete Evans. Oh, <laughs> you look, developed a special what, relationship. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that this guy had been promoting quite dangerous health cures even before the pandemic, you know, bone broth for, for babies that could, you know, kill them, that, that, that wasn't enough. No, it wasn't even the fact that, um, uh, that he was what was it, the $15,000 lamp that he was recommending for, yes. as a recipe for what he called the Wuhan virus. Yeah. And just a few weeks later, of course, implying that the virus is a hoax. Um, but, you know, we, we've, we've gotten rid of him, uh, at least for a short while. Yeah. Uh, it, it took him posting Nazi cartoons online. Uh, and that's the point, I think, where everyone went, we have had enough. Hey. Lost the TV deal, lost the book. We will see you later. Thank <laughs> you. Good night. I didn't miss the um, the timing of that um, that uh, Nazi post. It was very close to the time that a certain um, Melbourne GP called him. Um, what was it? A oh, I wouldn't know. Uh, and then that got quite a bit of media attention. And then I think a day or two later, he posted that Nazi cartoon. So I think someone else has to. Um, the, you know, the correlation is definitely there. I'm not saying the causation is there. Dr. The Neo, I think we've got an yeah. award for that yeah. very tweet coming up. 
Yeah, we'll find out who that Melbourne GP is. <laughs> yeah. um, and, of course, Sam, Sam Newman was having trouble not getting to the golf course. Tim Smith, the uh, member for QAnon, um, <laughs> calling <laughs> calling for a bat cull, um, stating that uh, Victoria's goals were impossible, um, in all in all being very unsupportive of uh, any effort to um, rid uh, our fine state of coronavirus. Um, and Donald Trump, who claimed on the 27th of February that COVID would disappear in June, he said the pandemic is fading away, and July said getting under control. And yesterday, I think it was 2,300 new cases. <laughs> um, I'm going with tool of the year. I mean, just for the global nature of it and the the genuine seriousness as well. I, I think the over. Uh, I think I've got to go Trump. I yeah. think so too. He's he, he wins it. He's just he's a symbol of the, the stupidity that has typified this pandemic. Oh, guys, sorry. There was one more nominee. I, I overlooked it. It was armchair epidemiologists around the world. <laughs> a close second. They were. <laughs> we, we we all became epidemiologists within minutes of finding out about the mm-hmm. the Wuhan virus. Um, Doctor Neo, who are you going with? You going with Trump? Yeah. Trump. Okay. Cool. Got to be unanimous. Okay. Um, nickname of the year. COVID-19 brought around um, a whole lot of very creative nicknames. Most obviously, we had um, Dictator Dan was a big one. There were a whole range that related to Dan Andrews, but um, uh, Dictator Dan was probably the dominant one. Dom- dominant one. Um, we had Novak, Novak's Dokovic. Uh, Novax Dokovid, the renowned uh, champion tennis player who wasn't um, entirely enthusiastic about vaccinations in general, but certainly nothing to do with um, uh, COVID. And the final two, both related to Brett Sutton, our chief uh, health officer, um, silver fox lining in relation to if something good's coming out of COVID, then this is, he's the silver fox lining. And the second um, was... Um, uh, CHO, you've got a picture of this, it's a, it's a written nickname, I guess, works best as a written name, nickname, in capital CHO, Cho, um, Chotty, Chotty for um, Brett Sutton. So yeah, instead of being a hottie, you're a Chotty. Yeah. And uh, yes, he's well and truly earned that. I think that, uh, I think that wins it, you know, Brett Sutton the Chotty. I, I'm going to go with Dictator Dan because I reckon that, um, you know, the people who are antagonistic to Dan, we obviously generated the nickname, but I reckon it was one of those co-options of a nickname that turned to his advantage. I, I completely agree because it's so clearly stupidly hyperbolic. Uh, yeah. It really works in his favour. I've, I've tweeted that several times. Yeah. So Dictator Dan wins it for me too. Yep, yeah, going with Dictator Dan. Um, tweet of the year. I think we might have a uh, an obvious winner here. We've got uh, there's uh, first nomination is um, Dan Murphy uh, opening hours tweeted by <laughs> our Nobel Prize winning <laughs> Professor Peter Doherty. Um, we had um, Dr. Viom Sharma um, who tweeted the very definition of an idiot <laughs> in response to uh, Pete Evans and uh, somebody um, by the name of Andy Milner. Milo Narcus. He's, he's an actor who I think on the uh, I think it was in on May the thirtieth this year. Yeah. To, uh, when um, when a, a, essentially a rocket kind of took off to the International Space Station, wrote, "Congratulations to the astronauts that left Earth today. Good choice. <laughs> Good choice." Uh, and ended up being the fourth most liked tweet in Twitter history. That's yeah. incredible. You could all agree on one thing. That's incredible. We're quickly running out of time, guys. I'm going with. Um, I, I've got to go with you, Dr. Sharma. The very definition of an idiot. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad Pete Evans suffered the consequences of that tweet. 
I have to uh, disagree with Dan Murphy opening hours just because it's our um, very esteemed and very intelligent um, Nobel laureate um, still tr- still trying to figure out how to Google. Yeah, it's, okay. it's trying to Google and, and Googling Dan Murphy opening hours at 3 p.m. on a Monday. So I'm going to give it to, to, uh, to Professor Peter Doherty. Okay, okay. Now, last but not least, and this is a positive, we're looking for the North Face Jacket Award, an award for somebody with outstanding service uh, to COVID-19 through 2020. We've got Premier Dan Andrews of Victoria, Australia. We've got Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern over in New Zealand. We've got Anthony Fauci over there in the US who not only communicated incredibly clearly but he also had to put up with the um that other person um gentlemen i'm gonna go with I, i've got to bring it local again i'm going with dan uh, i'm going with jacinta ardern she's um she's the prime minister i want <laughs> yeah you know, honestly, I'm, I, it's a tough one for me i'm actually gonna go with jacinta ardern as well i think just the the, the, the symbolism of this you know kind of Small nation with a with a with a female prime minister and just absolutely leading the world. Um, I think the repercussions of that are going to be felt for a long time in our history. So I'm going to go with uh, Jacinta Ardern. Okay, across the ditch it is to Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern. Well done, Jacinta um, from Radiotherapy Team Panel Beater. Look. That's uh, that's our lot for uh, 2020 here at Team Panel Beater. Um, bit of thanks before we go, so that we can get to Einstein a go go. Um, a big thanks to the station, particularly Dave Beck, Elizabeth, and all at Triple R. Special note to Sam who helped me through some technical stuff uh, during the year. Um, Sunday um, program. Program Grid Neighbours, Radio Marinara and Einstein and Gogo. I want to thank all our fabulous guests. We had so many awesome guests, many of them, um, uh, you know, getting up on a Sunday or getting in different time zones. Wonderful to have you with us. Um, a big thank to all Triple R sponsors through the year. That's been fabulous. Um, and of course, to subscribers, all Triple R listeners, and as particularly you, the radiotherapy listeners, your patience in a tough year has been um, really very much appreciated. Really wonderful. Big thanks to Dr. Sharma. Big thanks to Dr. Neo. Well done, gentlemen. And huge thanks to you, panel beater, <laughs> always holding this together. Um, <laughs> well, except good. for a very memorable uh, November show. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.